Let's pray. Father, uh, open our eyes uh, this morning to the word. May your spirit be our teacher. Grant us believing hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was a Wednesday morning, Wednesday morning on October 31st, 1517, when a young monk pushed his way through the crowds of pilgrims that had gathered in the small village of Wittenberg, Germany. The crowds had uh, gathered together there at that time to see uh, something that was really quite amazing. It was a display of religious relics. There in the castle of Frederick the Wise, the elector of Saxony, had been collected one of the largest private collections of religious relics. Over 19,000 religious relics had been collected by Frederick. Things such as bones, teeth, hairs, pieces of cloak from various saints, piece of straw, some strands of swaddling clothes from Christ's manger, piece of gold brought by one of the three wise men, a hair from Jesus' beard, a twig from the burning bush of Moses, a piece of bread served at the Last Supper. A thorn certified to have pierced Christ's brow. as well as one of the nails from his hands. More than 19,000 religious relics. Why would people come to see these things? Why would they pay to see these things? And they did. There was a, a cost involved in coming to see these. Well, it's beyond a merely morbid curiosity, although that probably played a part. But ultimately, it was because they believed that there was a spiritual advantage to be had. And the spiritual advantage lay in the official papal indulgence or pardon for their sins that was available to them. Indulgences in the Roman Catholic Church stretch back to the Middle Ages. They received... uh, really support, and I would even say were accelerated by Pope Urban II, who granted what was called plenary or full indulgences to all who participated in the First Crusade early in the 11th century. An indulgence is said to reduce or eliminate time spent in purgatory. Purgatory. Purgatory, according to the Roman Catholic Church, is a place where one suffers in the next life to pay the temporal punishment for their sins, Christ having paid the eternal punishment on his cross. One pays the temporal punishment there in purgatory, which must be paid there through suffering before one is granted entrance into heaven. 
Indulgences are granted by drawing upon what is called the treasury of merits. The treasury of merits. And you can think of it as sort of a, of a spiritual savings account. And the treasury of merits consists of the grace accumulated by Christ's sacrifice on the cross and then supplemented by the meritorious deeds of the saints. To Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. This morning we look at part two the judgment of false shepherds. We are returning here into Matthew's gospel with the judgment of the false shepherds of Israel. And by these judgments that Jesus lays out here, he reveals really the wickedness of man-made religion. Each one has an illustration. Each woe is followed by an illustration. And in this we can find sort of an explanation, a a definition, even an illustration ourselves for man-made religion. Common characteristics. Specifically, Jesus indicts the shepherds of Israel with an eight-count indictment. We looked a couple of weeks ago in verse 13 at the first of them. It was closing the kingdom. Closing the kingdom. Secondly, verse 14, praying on the vulnerable. Praying on the vulnerable. Verse 15, indoctrinating in error. Verses 16 through 22, encouraging prevarication. Verses 23 and 24, majoring on the minors. Verses 25 and 26, practicing externalism. Verses 27 and 28, ignoring inner purity. And then finally, verses 29 through 33, persecuting God's spokesman. An eight-part indictment. This morning, I want to look with you at the second of the indictments here, praying on the vulnerable in verse 14. Now, in order to do this, I need to bring to bear in, uh, in harmony fashion both Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel because they give an account of the same event. And we're going to draw very heavily upon what Mark and Luke, particularly Luke, has to say. Now, let me give you the outline for this morning. It's simply this, and then I'm going to address the question that's on about one-third of your minds at the moment. So here's the outline. It's a simple outline. We will see the leader's unscrupulous behavior. That's first. Their unscrupulous behavior. Secondly, their unsparing punishment. And finally, their uncaring attitude. All right. So immediately, right, I need to deal with a problem because I can see it on a number of your faces. You don't have verse 14 in your Bible. You're missing verse 14. This may be the first sermon you have ever come to on a sermon that's not in your Bible, or on a verse, rather, that's not in your Bible. 
Matthew 23 and verse 14. Some of you don't have it. You have the English Standard Version. You don't have it. I forgot to check the, uh, the NIV, but I assume it's not there either. Why? What is going on? I am leaving on vacation next week. I have not lost my mind. But I am leaving on vacation. I do need a break. But it raises a, an issue that I, I think it's, it needs to be talked about. You know, it's raised from time to time. It's a textual question. It has to do with manuscript families that stand behind the New Testament and so forth. And I am not going to get lost in all of that. I'll just tell you this, that Matthew chapter 23 and verse 14 is absent from some of the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. That's a fact. Beyond that, it, it, it appears in two different places in some of the other manuscripts in which it is found. Sometimes it appears before verse 13, and sometimes it appears after verse 13. So its placement in the, in the text moves. Now, I'm persuaded that Matthew did not write verse 14. That Matthew did not write verse 14. Actually, I believe that verse 14 was added later by those making copies of Matthew's gospel and was done so in in an attempt to sort of correlate it with the other gospel accounts of Mark and Luke. There are other places where I think this has also happened. But for this morning, here. So what are you doing, David? Why would I preach on a verse whose authenticity is under question? Well, the answer is, is because Jesus did say this, or something very similar to this, in this same context, as both Mark and Luke make absolutely clear and faithfully record. No one gospel writer records everything that was said in any particular context. They have their reasons, their purposes. I suspect Matthew records only seven because seven is the number of perfection. But Mark and Luke pick up this particular address here that is in, uh, in my copy, the NASB of Matthew four, uh, 23 and verse 14. So the point is Jesus did say it. Therefore, it's worth preaching on. He did say it. Beyond that, he said some other things that, that relate to this topic that, again, are recorded only in Mark and Luke's gospel. So it's sort of an interesting uh, sermon here. We are, we are doing an exposition of Matthew, but we're going to be uh, preaching on a verse that's not in Matthew, and uh, we're going to be preaching from Luke this morning. How's that? Can you follow that? All right. Now, it probably would help just to take a minute or two to, to kind of put this in a harmony for you so you can sort of see how that works. So it's, it's this. Uh, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, we have the first of the seven woes, right? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. 
For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. That is, you have disbelieved the evidence before your eyes that Jesus is the Messiah, and you have set yourself to undermining his credibility so that others won't believe in him either. You've shut off the kingdom of heaven. Following that, Mark's gospel, Mark 12, 40, Luke chapter 20 and verse 47, we find a, a statement about devouring widows' homes. You don't have to turn there yet. I'll turn you there in a moment. So that's sort of the next thing in the sequence of what occurred that day. Then back to Matthew 23, verses 15 to 39, where we have the, the second through the seventh of the woes pronounced and ending with his judgment pronouncement upon the nation. Then it appears Jesus uh, went and sat down momentarily for a little bit, and, and he observed a woman making her offering. And that's recorded in Mark 12, 41 to 44, and Luke 21, 1 to 4. So that's sort of the sequence of events. And what I'm after this morning is, is this statement about the, the, the um, devouring of the widow's homes and then the further statements here about the woman's offering. And I think it's important for us to, to get our arms around that. So that's where we're going. So, number one, their unscrupulous behavior. So I'll read it here in Matthew 12, 23, in the New American Standard. And then uh, I'm going to turn you. If you don't have that, go ahead and just turn ahead and, and get to uh, Luke 20 and verse 47, because that's where we're going to end up. So for those of you who have it in your text, and I'm sure it's designated there with some kind of brackets or something to let you know. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. So over to Luke 20. Luke 20. Beware of the scribes, he says, beginning of verse 46. Verse 47. Who devour widows' houses. And for appearance' sake, offer Long prayers. Beware the scribes who devour widows' houses and for appearance' sake offer long prayers. The verb devour, translated devour here in the English, carries the idea of to make prey of someone or something. To make prey of them. To plunder them. To plunder them. Or it's translated here to devour. To devour. Now Jesus here is bringing this really stinging rebuke publicly, right? After having bested his enemies in public debate. This is Tuesday afternoon of Passion Week. And he is bringing this stinging rebuke, and he's, and he's bringing it on the scribes and the Pharisees, right? The, the teachers of the law. And here he says, they devour widows' houses. That is, they plunder widows. They make prey of the widows. Now, I don't think that he is necessarily saying that all of them are guilty of this. But certainly there is, a, there is a sizable percentage that are guilty of taking from the one group in Israel who are most in need and leaving them devastated, destitute. 
and covering their crime by giving the appearance of piety, making long prayers. You see that? For appearance' sake, making long prayers. I think that the, what Jesus is saying here is, is that they are defrauding the widows and then praying publicly for the very widows they are defrauding. Covering their crime with a veneer of, of religion, with a fake piety. One commentator says they were guilty of, quote, catching the widow's substance with the bait of prayer. thought that was an interesting way to say it. Catching the widow's substance with the bait of prayer. In other words, they were spiritual and financial con artists, confidence men, plundering those were closest to the heart of God, the widows. Beloved, the widows in that time, there were no social safety nets. There were no social safety nets. When a man died and left his wife a widow, if her family was unable to provide for her, she was in very serious and desperate situation. They were the vulnerable ones. And they are the ones close to the heart of God. James chapter 1 and verse 27. This is pure and undefiled religion, right? To visit the widow and the orphan in their need. Now, Jesus doesn't detail the exact method that was being used. He just says they devour their homes. He doesn't tell us exactly how they were doing it. There have been a number of suggestions offered based on some sort of extra biblical uh, literature. And so let me suggest these to you. This is possible. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were the distinguished men of society. They were the leaders among the people. They were the godly ones. They were the ones looked up to. And they would have been the ones chosen to manage the property of the widows, particularly those widows who had dedicated either themselves or their, or their wealth to, to, the, to the temple. Remember Anna, right? She served in the temple. She was 84 when, when Christ is brought into the temple. So those widows who, who had devoted themselves to the service of the temple or who had perhaps devoted their estates to the temple under the, under the fiduciary, under the oversight of these, these spiritual leaders among the people, and somehow these men were taking advantage of them, plundering them, consuming, devouring their estates. Another suggestion is that they were simply just taking advantage of the hospitality of widows. The scribes and the Pharisees were lived upon the generosity of the people. So perhaps they were just sort of going from place to place and, and sponging off the, the vulnerable segment of society and, of course, offering a very long prayer, you know, thank you for your generosity and God will watch over you and so forth and pass the potatoes. 
Well, they don't pass potatoes in Israel, but you know what I'm saying. Another suggestion is that they, they actually uh, took homes as collateral for loans that they would make to widows that they knew the widow could not possibly repay. So they'd somehow make her a loan, secure it with her property, with her home, and then foreclose and, and take it. Another possibility is that they were guardians that had been appointed by the widow's husband in his will. And then as guardians of the estate, they would, they would milk the estate by taking lavish fees for the administration of the estate. So they basically consumed the estate through the oversight of the estate. Now, it's possible for any one or more of these means, maybe all of them, But regardless of whether it's one of these or all of these or even none of these and something we haven't even suggested, the crime remains the same. The crime is understandable. They who know the scripture and thus they know God's heart for the vulnerable of society are the very ones under the pretext of devotion to God who are making merchandise out of the people of God. And God abhors that kind of wickedness. God absolutely abhors that kind of wickedness. So their unscrupulous behavior leads next to their unsparing judgment. Their unsparing judgment. These will receive greater condemnation. These will receive greater condemnation. God is very, very, very serious about caring for the helpless among the community of believers. Very serious. And he's very serious about the believing community caring for those that are helpless within the believing community. That is the heart of God. And God is also explicit in the Old Covenant he speaks to the nation of Israel that he will severely punish his people if they oppress and take advantage of the helpless among them. He's very serious about that. For example, in Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 and following, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, And if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. And my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. And by the way, he brought that judgment to pass upon the nation. In the Syrian, Assyrian, and Babylonian captivities. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 18. He, that is God, executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. God cares about the helpless among the people of God. Or this one, Deuteronomy 27 and verse 19. 
This was Moses speaking to the people there on the plains of Moab before they enter into the promised land. And he says, when you get into the promised land, there are two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. I want you to cut the, split the people into half. I want you to put half the people on Mount Ebal. I want you to put half the people on Mount Gerizim. And I want you to yell back and forth across the valley, curses and blessings. A very vivid and visual display of what it means to follow the Lord your God. And what happens to you if you don't? And so Deuteronomy 27 and verse 19 is part of the, what the crowd on Mount Ebal would be hollering. Cursed is he who distorts the justice, do an alien, orphan, and widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Amen. And then we, we immediately encounter a story about a poor widow who is drastically impoverished, right? Verse 4. She put in all that she had to live on by participating in the religious system over which these leaders presided. Verse 1, it's the temple where she makes the offering. Verse 1. Observation. Jesus looked up and saw. Jesus looked up and saw. Jesus does not commend the widow for what she has done. He merely observes a fact. He looked up and he saw. Truly, that is, this is the truth. She put in more than they did. That's a statement of fact. That's an observation. It's an observation. Proportionally, she put in more than anyone else. Why? Because she put in everything she had to live on, which means she would go home and die. Go home and die. If this is a, if this is a lesson on generous giving like a stewardship lesson it's out of it it just seems like it's out of place whoa condemnation upon upon the leaders upon the upon the nation itself right you know like a like a like a hen you know i wanted to gather you under my arms and but you would not have me and and you'll not see me until blessed you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord and by the way let me give you a lesson on stewardship this doesn't really fit. It doesn't fit. He's not talking about stewardship. Beyond that, if, if this is a key, key lesson, right? This is, a, this is a key text. This is a key lesson on sacrificial giving. Then why isn't it picked up on anywhere else in the New Testament? It's never referenced. The widow is not commended here in the text. Jesus doesn't say, you need to give like she gives. He doesn't say that. Beyond that, the the religious system of Judaism, which was incorporated into the early church, was supposed to care for the widows, to provide for them financially, not render them destitute. She puts in all she has to live on. 
and goes home to die. Remember Acts chapter 6? Right? What's the problem in Acts 6? Right? It leads to the formation of what we would say is prototypical deacons. Right? The widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution for their needs. Right? So the church is in trouble. It's going to be split. There's questions about uh, preferences along ethnic lines and so forth. And so the prototypical deacons are, are sent to, to provide for this and to heal this breach in the church. Right? To care for the, the helpless among them. Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 10, he's talking about his time there in Jerusalem. When he's speaking with the so-called pillars of the church, right? James and Peter and John. He says, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas and that we might go to the Gentiles and they might go to the uncircumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I also was eager to do, Paul says. Remember the poor. Acts chapter 24, verse 17. Paul's recounting why he is in Jerusalem to begin with when he's arrested there, right? And he says, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. That is, I I came to bring an offering of relief for the poor there in Jerusalem. And who are the poorest of the poor? It is the widows. It is the widows. If this is a teaching on sacrificial giving, if that were what it really is about, then the application would be that you receive Jesus' commendation when you put your entire paycheck into the offering plate and you receive his disapproval when you don't. Because that's what you've got to look at here, right? They put in out of their wealth. She put in the last two pennies she had to live on. Application. If you want to be called out by Christ for commendation, you need to put everything in there. Everything. And anything less just doesn't make it. I mean, let's, if, if this is a text on stewardship, then let's, let's stay faithful to that. Nowhere. Nowhere in either the, the entire Bible, Old or New Testament, is it ever taught that you need to put every single dime you have into the offering to God. Nowhere is that taught. Sacrificial giving, yes. Absolutely. Giving away everything you have to live on, no. It is not taught. So here's some questions. What kind of a religion would think it's a good idea for a poor widow to put her last cent into the offering plate and then go home and die? What kind of religion would think that's a good idea? In what way would that reflect the heart of God? What perversion of God's word would convince this helpless victim that it's a good idea? What perversion, what, what teaching of Scripture would convince her that it is a good idea to put everything you've got and to go home and die? Where is the mercy in that? Where is the compassion in that? 
Oh, don't worry. God will take care of you. That's easy for you to say. That's easy for you to say. Beloved, it is no wonder that Jesus said his people were like sheep without a shepherd. Burdened and weighed down by a hopeless, helpless system of works-based righteousness that favored the wealthy and chewed up the poor. The whole thing is corrupt. The whole thing is corrupt. And what made this, I think, doubly damnable is that it was the temple treasury. Because there, there's, there's sort of an inherent claim to divine legitimization, right? After all, it's the temple where you're giving the offering. It's going into the treasury of the temple. It's going to God's work. One writer says it this way. He says, how could it, that is the temple, be involved with injustice? How could that be? It's God's own house. I mean, the system, it just couldn't be that bad. But it was. But it was. These false shepherds and their corrupt system are following in the lineage of the false shepherds that God condemned in Ezekiel 34. The false shepherds of Israel. Those who fed themselves by slaughtering the sheep, the prophet says. Just like their forefathers. Well, beloved, tragically, this uncaring attitude, this unscrupulous behavior is all too common today. All too common. This is the state of most television preachers. This is the state of all purveyors of the prosperity gospel. All of them. They are thieves making merchandise of the helpless among God's people. They fleece the sheep while growing fat off the wealthy contributions of the poor and the gullible. Spent just a few minutes, really. It didn't take long on the internet this week to just check on a few. Bishop T.D. Jakes lives in a $1.7 million mansion. Estimated net worth, $18 million. Benny Hinn. Estimated net worth, $42 million. Creflo Dollar. Estimated net worth, $27 million. Kenneth Copeland. Has a one point or seventeen point five million dollar private jet to take him around. Lives in a six million dollar church owned lakefront mansion. Net worth unknown. However, I found on YouTube a video that he claims that his ministry has taken in since its inception, since its inception, inception in the last forty plus years. Over $1.3 billion. 
for $1.3 billion. And Joyce Meyer, estimated net worth, $8 million. She's sort of new to the scene. But she'll catch up, don't worry. Joel Osteen, you know the guy who smiles too much. Yeah, well, he's got his hand in your wallet. Estimated net worth, $40 million. $40 million. Beloved, it is, it is absolutely wicked for frauds and con men to prey upon the poor and the vulnerable. Absolutely wicked. But it, got, it draws God's particular anger when it is done in his name. When it is done in his name. The only antidote for such corruption is the pure light of the gospel of grace. That's the antidote. The gospel is incompatible with an emphasis on money. It is incompatible. Where you find one, you will not find the other. They cannot live together. If there is an emphasis on money, there is a de-emphasis on the gospel. If there is an emphasis on the gospel, there will not be an emphasis on money. They do not walk hand in hand. God, out of the kindness, compassion, and generosity of his loving heart, sent forth his own son into this world to bear the sin of his people, to die a bloody sacrifice to carry their guilt, to extinguish their debt. And then he rose, a dead, arose again from the dead on the third day, breaking the bonds of death and sin and offering eternal life to all who will have him by faith. Beloved, the gospel is free. Because God paid a terrible price. May God grant us grace to apply the truth. Father, thank you. Thank you that you reached out to us with the gift of your son. Oh Lord, may you help us to meditate on that reality. Oh, Lord, for those among us, perhaps some here for the very first time, who have yet to experience new life in Christ, still living under the bondage of sin and guilt, may you open their eyes to the truth. May you deliver them from bondage. May you set them free. Dear Father, may you work among us as your people to be that gospel lighthouse preaching the truth. A truth of deliverance through Christ that knows no barrier, knows no boundary. That it is for the slum children of India. That it is for the Brahmin caste of India that it is for the intellectual and the wealthy among us. It is for the poor and the helpless among us. 
It is for our neighbors. It is for our families. It is for our friends. It is for us. Oh, Lord, may you enable us to become gospel preachers. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.